From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Orlando, Florida today. Lauren Hepler is at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, the future of green design. We'll talk about resilient buildings, when CEOs get fired, where green jobs are going, and I'm here at Disney World. It's a small world after all, this week on 350. It's January 15th, 2016. Welcome to GreenBiz 350. I'm in Orlando, as I said. Lauren Hepler, senior editor, is at GreenBiz headquarters. How you doing, Lauren? Good, good. Why the heck are you at Disney World right now? <laughs> well, there's Magic Mountain and all Space Mountain and all sorts of mountains here. But uh, when I'm here for the uh, one of our uh, three meetings this month of the Green Biz Executive Network, that's the membership uh, peer-to-peer learning group that we have of sustainability executives from big companies and the different companies host who are here this week that Disney is hosting. They're a member and will be a few weeks, a couple weeks from now in uh, back in San Francisco at PG&E headquarters and then later in the month at, uh, at Waste Management in Phoenix. But um, yeah, we've had a great meeting. Uh, it, it, it just wound down and um, saw, you know, we had about 20 companies in the room and, uh, you know, sort of the usual great um, conversation that that they share uh, off the record or Chatham House rules about the challenges they have, the things they're working on, the successes they're having, what they've learned and, and all of that. But the really great, great part of this. I mean, the meetings are always good, but we always do some excursions. And uh, on Wednesday, we got a VIP tour of Cape Canaveral. Wow. So what you went from Disney to NASA? Yeah, well, one space thing to another, I guess. But yeah, it was, uh, I mean, this is going to be horrible, but it was out of this world. I mean, for someone (laughs) who, who grew up during the space age, I mean, I can remember not just the moon landing, uh, but uh, you know, John Glenn orbiting the uh, first person to orbit the, the, the Earth and, and all that. And just watching the Mercury, Apollo or Gemini, Mercury, Gemini and Apollo programs and and all that's happened since then. And to be able to go, they took us into um, the vehicle assembly building, that uh, 600 plus foot building where they actually build the space shuttle and everything else. And then we wheel them out on these gantries and these launch already on the launch pad to the sites um, to go into the control room where 150 or 200 different launches have been counted down uh, and uh, <laughs> to, you know, see where all the different people sitting, the flight director, the, the surgeon, the medical team, the the payload specialist and all these. Anyway, it was very cool. That and, does sound cool. Did you see Elon Musk poking around? Any sign of SpaceX? A very much sign of SpaceX. Uh, SpaceX has a big building and they're building a launch pad there. In fact, uh, I, I, he told us that they put a sign up before they got permission to do so. And it's a <laughs> classic uh, tech, you know, uh, apologize later kind of way. Uh, so SpaceX is very much there. Uh, they're 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 launching things from there, and we'll be doing increasingly more of that. And you know, really appreciate, you know, one of the things as you remember at Verge uh, in October we had 
Katie Coleman, the uh, astronaut, um, space shuttle and space station veteran, who is also the astronaut uh, liaison to the NASA Office of Technology, along with Jason Cruzan, who runs uh, a program within NASA to help develop the technologies needed for long duration space travel to, to Mars. And, you know, it really is the ultimate sustainability exercise. And you really got that sense of how these people build these these little spaceships to to support life for days or even weeks uh and now at the space station months or a year in the case of scott kelly who's up there for a long duration and and um it's really just uh, an amazing feat and to understand the context of why we did what we did uh you know in terms of uh the soviet union and and not that this was even the the best thing or the thing that Kennedy JFK wanted to do most, but it was the thing that we could do to show the world that we were advanced, that was the easiest to get to relative to all the other things, and so that sort of rose to the top. Anyway, the, the, these are the people giving us this VIP tour were, were had been part of the program. They weren't just you know tour guides. They they had been involved with this for decades, and it was just really special. Yeah, that sounds like a great first field trip for 2016. And we did also have the NASA team on the inaugural edition of Green Biz 350, which is archived on iTunes along with the rest of the episodes we do. Um, but I also wanted to just do a little teaser. We're also going to be, you were talking about Verge. Our first big event of this year is Green Biz 16, coming up in just a few weeks in Scottsdale, Arizona, which we'll be talking about later in the program. Um, but lots of exciting stuff going on. Yeah, and then just uh, to give a plug, I think if you're listening to this today on Friday, the 15th, today is actually the, at the end of today, uh, I guess, is when the uh, early bird rate uh, expires. So if you're on top of things and listening to this and you really want to go, you'll save several hundred bucks. So um, you should know about that. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, as we always do. Let's get into the Green Biz Week in Review. So ramping back up this year, we've had an interesting new addition to the editorial fold. David Crane, the ex-CEO of independent power producer NRG Energy, has been on quite a streak of late. We had a new piece up this week with the uh, interesting title, If I Was Right, Why Was I Fired? Uh, Joel, what was the genesis of that piece? Well, I've... uh known David for a while and, and been in conversation with him uh, ever since he was, uh, well, he was fired by the board um, uh, just as he was about the second week in December and uh, saw him in Paris uh, at COP21 and spent some time talking. And, you know, I really wanted to hear not only his side of the story, but but David was really interesting as a, as a CEO, a CEO of a, of a a Fortune 200 company. Uh, it was named the number two CEO in in terms of, by Fortune and in, in the world and Global 1000 in terms of of just sort of admiration and a number of other things. And he um, he's been very outspoken about lots of different things. Uh, we have a couple of pieces we ran uh, back in 2014 and 2015 where he made some. Uh, just really put himself and the company out there uh, about climate and clean energy and accelerating and you know getting on with this uh, so-called low carbon economy and 
you know, it didn't fit, turn out well for him because he got ahead of his board and shareholders and uh, there were some pressures there. And I think he wanted to explore and uh, we offered him the pages of Green Biz to talk about, well, I was right about, you know, the need for fossil fuels to, to phase down over the next decade or two and to ramp up renewables. And that is the future. And if I was right, why was I fired? And so he went through sort of the, the obvious reasons. This is about short term thinking. And uh, it turns out, you know, and he, and he sort of batted each one down uh, or most of them down in terms of it's not short termism. Uh, it's uh, and he, a lot of people have come to him with theories. So he was sort of playing them back. And it wasn't about the company's stock, uh, at least relative to other independent power producers. Everyone's stock was down, but he was the only IPP CEO who was fired. And he said, I think the problem was transformation, you know, taking a company from brown to green and from centralized to distributed energy. Uh, the investors didn't like it. They, you know, wanted to, you know, just keep making the money that that fossil fuels uh, were making. And, and NRG is, uh, I think, second or third largest greenhouse gas emitter in um, in the United States. And so, you know, they have a lot of brown energy, but they liked the money that was being made uh, and uh, didn't really want to change that. So uh, I guess that just shows how the challenges of of shareholder profits versus the long-term you know, planetary future just bump into each other. Yeah, I know institutional emergers in particular, in institutional investors rather, emerged as uh, one key theme in David's piece. And it's interesting because we have a little bit of a debate going on elsewhere with um, a few other contributors. Bob Langert, the former CSO of McDonald's, did a piece last week on how the whole uh, activist in investor community petitioning financiers to really take their money out of unsustainable investments has maybe sort of gotten a little derailed. I think he said uh, it's a little polemic, maybe not necessarily contributing too much to short-term gains. But then we had um, the head of As You Sow, which is in fact one of those activist groups, write a response to that. Um, and he argued that no, sort of these activist appeals to institutional investors really are going to be crucial to the sort of transformation that David's talking about. So I think this is a hot topic right now that we'll continue to hear more about. Well, and we're going to be hearing more from David. Uh, he'll we'll have a piece from him next week and um, look for an announcement next week about David. I uh, won't say anything more than that, but um, we're excited about uh, bringing his voice to the Green Biz. And in fact, Bob uh, is another great example of a, of a former corporate executive veteran who you know, has been there, done that, and done that in some ways better than anyone else, in his case, 33 years at McDonald's, and has a lot of perspective and a lot to say, and and more or equally important, is very willing to say it and, you know, doesn't have a lot to uh, worry about now and, and is just being very candid about, uh, about consumers, about investors, about NGOs, about lots of things. So uh, we're going to be seeing more from him and, and, and more from David. 
Yeah, and it's also funny that we're focusing so much on this idea of transformation and sort of the macro shift to the low-carbon energy future uh, because we had a piece this week that in some ways shows a lot of this is already here. I actually wrote a piece about an annual solar job census that the Solar Foundation out of Washington, D.C. does, uh, and they found that solar employment in the U.S. has reached 209,000 people. For those keeping track, that's about 77% more than the domestic coal mining industry at this point. Uh, the bulk of jobs are still in installation, which tends to pay a median $21 an hour. Um, so we're going to have to see sort of how those wages are. Um, still some diversity issues. Not a lot of women, not a lot of people of color. Um, the rate of union employees is pretty low. But Joel, I'm curious. I, I assume you've been following the clean energy job numbers for a while. and We've had folks like Van Jones on this show talking about about the future of green employment, uh, but just curious to see how you've sort of seen this evolve. Well, it's been certainly been evolving in numbers, but one of the things that's interesting, and I think, uh, you know, sort of problematic in a way, it's a good thing, and it's uh, in a way, and it's not in another way, is that while coal jobs are in a handful of states, Pennsylvania, Indiana, West Virginia, uh, and, and environs, these um, Renewable energy jobs, solar, as you're talking about now, but there's plenty of wind as well, are all over the place. Not in every state, but in a lot of states. And sure, there's you know California, New Jersey, and Hawaii, and and a few other states, Arizona, that have uh, a lot more than others. But because they're so uh, broad, uh, broadly dispersed, and they're not concentrated, um, you may not have the political clout that uh, you know four or five coal states have in terms of. Uh, being able to get the interest of, of big donors and, and senators and members of Congress and the kinds of, of people who unfortunately have so much clout when it comes to keeping the status quo. Um, and so that's going to be interesting. Is when will and how will there be a political movement uh, in or focusing on renewables? We don't know that yet. Right. And to your point about sort of the geographic diversity that you have to account for in all of this, I asked the executive director of the Solar Foundation if we, we hear a lot at the high level that, oh, well, this is a huge retraining and workforce opportunity, get the people coming out of brown energy jobs, retrain them for green energy jobs. It seems like sort of a natural thing. But she said, actually, um, while that sounds great in theory, a lot of the places where you have coal mines closing or oil pipelines not being utilized anymore are in markets that aren't exactly hot places for solar or wind, like Kentucky, West Virginia in particular for coal, whereas the solar jobs are concentrated in California, Massachusetts, Texas, uh, North Carolina. So that that I think this whole idea of we keep hearing about uh, the need to prepare for a 21st century economy and get the workforce ready for that, but how that actually happens still isn't clear in any way. Yeah, yeah, and we've seen you know uh, geographic you know job migration in the past, and so it's uh, you know the, when the auto industry faded and moved, or at least moved from the Midwest in some cases down to Tennessee and, and other parts of the South, uh, and so we it's still possible that that may emerge, but again it it's just not concentrated enough. And there's no big like factory towns because this is distributed energy by definition. It's right. on every rooftop or potentially every rooftop and an empty lot and, and other places. And so we don't 
have that. And that's going to be, I think, a problem for the renewable energy industry going forward and, you know, getting that kind of cloud to at least, you know, if, if not outdo or stand up to, at least have a voice. Right. And you, you talk about the solar industry being disaggregated and sort of spread out. Uh, climate risk is another variable that we've been following for a long time. We had a great story today by our senior writer, Mike Hauer, that was about the growing push for micro insurance in developing countries that are looking at daunting climate impacts like sea level rise, uh, extreme weather, drought that, that could have large financial and economic ripples in, a, in addition to the, the physical and safety threats that they pose. Um, so he's talking about companies like Bima Mobile, MicroInsure, MFS Africa, which act as sort of technical service providers for insurers, banks, credit providers, mobile network operators. It's about girding your infrastructure and your investments against uh, climate change, which I think is an interesting area. Yeah, and our old friend Keith uh, Larson uh, has a piece this week as well about uh, the insurance industry and climate risk uh, based on a report from EY or Ernst & Young uh, that's showing how, how uh, environmental and sustainability concerns have you know, become increasingly of uh, material to investors, uh, but also to insurers. And, um, and so that's I think it's not a new story. We've seen this for a while, but this was that Ernst & Young t uh, started to uh, assess, analyze, measure this in a way that hadn't necessarily been done before. And and talking about stranded assets, this is something we've been talking about for a while, about these uh, stranded assets or, or assets that once had value, uh, you know, that like oil in the ground, it's on a balance sheet that no longer may or may no longer be able to be, you know, uh, capitalized on. Um, or the definition uh, according to uh, in the story of stranded assets are assets that have suffered from unanticipated or premature write downs, devaluations, or conversions to liabilities. And they can be caused by a variety of risks. Again, you know, unburnable carbon. Um, and so I think we're starting to get some sense at the macroeconomy level as well as uh, at the individual investor or institutional investor level. A, a, more of a handle on the costs and benefits, the job creations, as your story has, the the stranded asset risk, as Keith's story has, and also the opportunities around, uh, you know, how the micro investing can leverage change uh, all over the world. So I guess what I'm saying is a fuller picture of the benefits of renewable and distributed energy. It's not just about the environment or doing the right thing or greeting up your image or even just the business opportunity. There's a lot going on here, and I think we're beginning to understand the fullness of it. Yeah, this also seems like sort of ground zero for the interplay between government and private sector. When we were in Paris covering COP21, the term of art uh, dealing with developing countries responding to climate change was loss and damage, sort of how governments are going to step up to pay for climate mitigation and the response to um, disasters that at, at this point, unfortunately, seem kind of inevitable. Um, but now with things like microinsurance or investors being pushed to get more active in, in the whole climate action scene, you have the opportunity for the private sector to be contributing capital there. Um, so uh, the, the numbers that you're dealing with here are just huge trillions yep. of dollars that are going to be necessary. So it does seem like you kind of need all hands on deck. And this seems like the early stages of that possibly starting to come together. 
What else are we talking about this week? Just getting ready for GreenBiz 16. As I mentioned, there's some interesting threads there with the circular economy, uh, the the whole idea of the purpose economy, uh, sort of the next phase of employee engagement. Also, as you alluded to in our opening, delved into the world of green design. Let's turn now to delve deeper into the world of green design. Joining me now is GreenBiz senior writer, Barbara Grady. How's it going, Barbara? Good. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Good, good. So you had a great story this week that focused on the San Francisco company Autodesk, obviously a big design player, mostly known for their software. Um, I'm curious, though, what have you learned about their entree into the 3D printing or additive manufacturing space? So Autodesk seems very interested in 3D printing. They not only developed a software platform for it, which they are making open to other software makers to use as a kind of basic roadmap, but they also have entered into the hardware business with 3D printing. So they're kind of in a big way into 3D printing right now. Yeah, and you obviously picked up the sustainability thread here. And one really interesting variable that you focused in on was the idea of melding 3D printing with biomimicry or this discipline of design that mimics biological phenomena. So what can you say about that and what Autodesk is taking on? So 3D printing or additive manufacturing has been heralded for its potential sustainability. Um, It if done right, it can use less energy and less material because, you know, an exact shape is deposited and then another layer of it and so on. But one missing piece in that sustainability picture is the actual material or resin used to, you know, upon which a printing is made. So Autodesk is looking into that and looking at potential better materials. And to do so, because they're mostly a software company, they went outside to other experts, particularly the Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry, which is a um, department at the University of California at Berkeley. So Reyes, alma mater. <laughs> Our technical director <laughs> is an alum in the room, yeah. Uh, and so you talked to Autodesk about this, right? Like, yes. To the people who are actually working on this. Right, day and, day. and they're also working with the Biomimicry Institute on this quest. But at any rate, I spoke with um, two folks at Autodesk, one of whom is the Senior Sustainable Design Program Manager. Her name is Dawn Danby, and she talked about Autodesk's overall kind of quest and interest in additive manufacturing. We're looking at a whole new set of manufacturing processes and new approaches to making things. And we have an opportunity right now, not not just Autodesk, but but all of us, as, as we go through this transition, to change the way we make things in a way that is aligned with sustainability goals, um, in a way that is really different from the way that 20th century manufacturing was designed. You know, at Autodesk, we're really interested in what can happen with the future of 3D printing, because it is a really, you know, a, a new set of technologies that have a lot of really wonderful and really interesting opportunities for um, for making things that are really remarkable in terms of new geometry, being able to make things on demand, being able to make things locally. So there's lots of, of potential environmental upsides 
to 3D printing or additive manufacturing, and we're really interested in all of those. And, uh, and as we've been exploring what sustainability could mean in 3D printing and how we can help steer the industry towards more sustainable outcomes, one of the things that we've been really trying to tackle is the question of materials. Um, and part of that, is, part of the reason for that is that there's lots of new innovations happening with different kinds of 3D printing, but we think that there's more of an opportunity to look at materials more broadly and, and also to bring to bear a lot of the new thinking around what does a greener material mean? How can we make something that is uh, bio-friendly, so friendly to life? What could happen if, you, if the materials that you were using um, in these new manufacturing approaches are also totally safe to animals and to ecosystems and to humans? It changes the, what we can do with those materials. So, you know, in, in the interest of pursuing that, we started reaching out to experts in the field, people who really understand um, green chemistry. So that's part of why we, we started working with the Center for Green Chemistry at UC Berkeley, looking at, at materials from the perspective of, of how to create things that are as safe as possible. And then also working with the Biomimicry Institute because of the work that they do in looking to nature for not just inspiration, but actually understanding the, the, the mechanisms of how nature creates things. Fascinating stuff. I think what that really brings to mind for me is sort of this broader push towards the circular economy or this whole idea of uh, using materials more efficiently, uh, specifically keeping natural resources in play longer, keep them circulating through supply chains. But a lot of that obviously ties back to the different types of polymers and resins that are actually used in 3D printing in particular, which I think is a field that people are just now trying to wrap their heads around sort of what the sustainability implications are there. So I'm curious, Barbara, how that came into your reporting. Yeah, so that question of the polymers used is the very thing that Autodesk is looking at right now in its venture with the Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry and with the Biomimicry Institute. Because in most industrial applications, what is used are resins that are called stereolithography resins, and they're basically hazardous when used. And if they're disposed of before they become solids, they're, they can be toxic to marine life. So... Autodesk and the Berkeley Center are looking at nature, like what's out there that could be different, that could be non-toxic, non-hazardous, and um, at the end of their useful life could just kind of biodegrade and go back into the, to the world. So I also spoke with Shalom Ormsby at Autodesk. He's the 3D printing user experience manager, and he spoke about why this resin material is such an important issue for them. Of course, Autodesk uh, is uh, traditionally a software company, um, but we're now transitioning into an integrated software hardware um, um, offering. And so uh, it's because we're, we've created our own 3D printer, which um, prints uh, with stereolithography um, in a DLP process, which is digital light processing, um, that uses um, resins for its build material. Traditional resins are, um, are not created in, in a way that is uh, focused on uh, necessarily applying nature's processes to that, to the 3D printing process. And so 
Um, we have those materials already available on traditional photopolymers, and so they work great. They offer high performance, and that's, that's a win for, for, um, for, the, for 3D printing in general. And we want to um, also, in addition to that, focus research on um, learning from lessons from nature about, you know, nature has been uh, effectively 3D printing for billions of years, um, being very successful at assembling um, additively, um, uh, and we want to basically learn how how is that how does that work and take inspiration for um, for for uh, finding optimization in, in in the process, creating things that are as as Dawn says friendly to life, and um, that ultimately offer the best user experience and and potentially also expand um, the set of um, things that can be created with uh, with additive manufacturing or 3D printing. And nature creates really high-performance, amazing materials and does it in, in contexts that don't require a lot of heat or a lot of um, complicated materials uh, or chemicals that, um, that need to be synthesized. You know, nature cr will create, you know, hard ceramics um, or really soft, uh, squishy, um, really remarkable high-performance materials and does it all kind of using things like seawater, using things like... Um, you know, at at uh, low temperatures and sunlight, and that's really remarkable. So there's there's so much there that can be uncovered, and uh, we're really in the early days of trying to understand some of those mechanisms. And in the case, for example, of the Humboldt squid, you know, we have um, this material that has functional gradients that have been um, built into it that go from um, soft and squishy all the way up to incredibly uh, incredibly tough so that it's able to actually cut through bone. One thing I've, I really enjoy talking about is the excitement that I've witnessed in the students who are participating in the UC Berkeley Center for Green Chemistry. Um, and I, I, I've been so encouraged to see how passionate they are about this work and about um, the way that they're able to align what I imagine are their values for sustainability and earth friendliness to align that with, the, the, um, with their academic uh, research and so as to be able to expand the the palette of materials that are available for this you know exciting new field. So it does seem that Autodesk is quite interested in additive manufacturing as a way to make manufacturing more sustainable generally. So it'll be really interesting to see where they go with this. Yeah, all of these concepts additive manufacturing, aka 3D printing, and then these much bigger themes of the circular economy all really engrossing stories that will continue to cover doggedly. So stay tuned for that. Thank you very much, Greenbiz senior writer Barbara Grady, for joining us. You're most welcome. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about what is going on at Greenbiz. Joining me this week is our conference director, Ellie Beekner. How's it going, Ellie? It's going well. Thanks so much for having me here, Lauren. Yeah, definitely. She is a busy woman right now. We're about five weeks out from GreenViz 16. And I know podcast listeners have heard a lot about our Verge event series, which is the convergence of technology and sustainability. But GreenViz 16 is a little different. What's that really all about, Ellie? 
Yeah, so Green Biz 16 is uh, an event we do every year. This is our eighth annual uh, Green Biz Forum event. And uh, we really it's it's really framed by our annual State of Green Business report, um, which is kind of a key accounting of uh, metrics and trends and sustainability, kind of looking at, at what's happened in the past year and what we can expect for the year ahead. Um, we're really excited about the event this year. We're continuing our partnership with ASU and, T- and uh, the Sustainability Consortium. We'll hold this event as part of the Sustainability Solution. Festival uh, February 12th through 27th in Phoenix at Arizona State University. Um, so we will have some special appearances from Michael Crow, and then continuing our partnership with the with the Sustainability Consortium, we'll have uh, Sheila Benini speaking, um, their CEO, as well as uh, a number of workshop sessions uh, led by uh, some of their members and uh, key people there. One thing that we're really excited about with the Sustainability Solutions Festival this year is uh, we will again be having the Sustainability Solutions Celebration at the Desert Botanical Garden. This will be on Tuesday night and it'll be open for all of our attendees um, to join. So it's a really beautiful event uh, held at this awesome garden uh, as the sun sets. We'll have amazing um, food and drinks and networking and some special performances and presentations there as well. So we're very excited about that event. Yeah, I remember that last year. So obviously setting the scene, it's like this beautiful desert setting. You've got all the the cacti and the native plants, but because this is all happening right outside of Phoenix, uh, the conference actually takes place in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, But so it's a familiar setting, but in some ways the event is different this year. I know one emphasis is splitting the program into different tracks, how do you pick what the biggest ideas are that you want to tackle? Yeah, so we're really excited about the tracks this year. As Lauren said, it's the first year we've done them. Um, And it really came out of a way uh, or a thinking of a way to kind of better organize the event and let people know know what we're all about. Um, So so the way we kind of pulled the tracks together was uh, through looking at past content and kind of seeing what what are kind of ever-present themes, but then also looking at what are some new kind of um, emerging concepts that are coming out of sustainability. So a couple of our, our newer, more kind of conceptual ideas are uh, the design and circular economy track, which is sponsored by Dow. We're really excited about this track. Circular economy has been such a buzzword this year. So we're really excited to kind of dig into this topic and see what it really means for business. Yeah, that's been a huge one on the editorial side. I know those are some of our best read stories, but what yeah. else do you guys have going on? Um, and then we also have this this new emerging concept of, of purpose and leadership. And, and PwC is actually sponsoring this track and has been a great thought partner in this as well. Um, we have Shannon Schuyler, the chief purpose officer there, talking about that. Um, and we'll also have a number of workshops kind of getting into what purpose really means for business and how this plays out in yeah. a corporate environment. That chief purpose officer, that's quite a job title. And I know one of the other terms I heard you tossing around was purpose washing. So <laughs> yes. there's all those things. I'm very excited to learn about what the heck that means. Yes, I'm looking forward to those sessions a lot. Um, another track we're very excited about um, materiality and metrics uh, this this track will be sponsored by sealed air and this is always kind of a very important topic for us um, reporting is kind of an evergreen sustainability um, topic and goal setting as well has really emerged as uh, a key theme how do you set appropriate goals especially coming out of 
cop, having these aggressive targets, what does that mean for business? Um, so we're excited to have Seal Dare helping us with that. And we'll have a lot of rich content and the materiality and metrics um, part of the program as well. And who's going to be talking about all this stuff? I know you mentioned some of the sponsors and the, the different companies that will be represented, but who are some of the individual speakers you're most excited about this year? Yeah, so we're we're thrilled to have Ellen MacArthur, the founder of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation there. Um, she's such a thought leader in the circular economy. We're really delighted to have her. We'll also have Paul Hawk in there talking about his new project, Drawdown, um, which kind of looks at, at solutions we already have for drawing down carbon in the atmosphere. Um, so we're delighted to have him there. We'll also have Jim Keen, the CEO of Steelcase, offering a business perspective on what sustainability means for business. We'll have Aaron Kramer um, on the talking about the Sustainable Development Goals, president and CEO of BSR. Um, we'll also, I'm excited about, I'm really excited about this one, um, Diane Regas of EDF and Kathleen McLaughlin of Walmart talking about this uh, landmark partnership and it uh, started in 2005. So what's the status of the partnership 10 years later? So How big is Big company, big NGO. Exactly. To, clean energy, would that be the focus of that? Um, it's it'll really be about the whole partnership. Okay, so gotcha. energy is a big part of it. Scorecarding. Um, there's a lot to cover in that conversation. Um, and then we're really excited to announce that we've just confirmed Christine Harada, who is the new federal chief sustainability officer um, at the White House. Wow. Scoop. That's a good one. I know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We had covered earlier this year on the editorial side, uh, the former White House chief sustainability officer was poached by Google, Kate Brandt. So this is brand new public official. Exciting. That, that'll be a good one. I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah. And we're always kind of excited to learn more about uh, kind of sustainability policy and how business can have a role in policy side and, and kind of the, the link between policy and business. Totally. And I know I, I'm from D.C., so I may be a little biased. Like, eyes tend to glaze over when policy comes <laughs> up. But I think with renewable energy in particular, it's becoming more of like a, a real necessary evil that you totally have to have your hand on the pulse, pulse of it. So Definitely. Like and cool especially window. with uh, Obama's last year in office, looking to leave this climate legacy, big focus of the State of the Union address. Um, so we're excited to see how that plays out in the White House and what that means for corporates. Cool. So outside of the content side of all this that you spend so much time hammering out, I know there's also some fun sort of uh, all kinds of stuff, really. I won't jump the gun, but what what is in the works for this year outside of the four walls of the conference? Yeah. So um, as we discussed, we're really excited about the Sustainability Solutions Celebration at the Desert Botanical Garden. Um, in addition to that awesome program, we'll also have this fantastic hike up Camelback Mountain on Tuesday morning. In addition to the hike, we'll have um, a couple of other special programs. We'll, we'll, we're going to bring back our Green Biz Guru sessions this year. Um, this time, we'll, we're going to do them over lunch. So it's a great opportunity to have an informal conversation around a particular top of, topic of interest. Also really excited about our Birds of a Feather dinners this year. This is a great way for conference attendees to kind of get to know each other in a more informal setting over dinner um, following the day's program. Um, we'll also we're also offering a new program this year um, called Food for Thought Team Lunches. This is following Thursday's program. Um, so this is kind of an opportunity uh, if you've brought your team to the event, if, if you have some colleagues there. Um, a lot of times when you get back to the office, you you hit the ground running. You don't really debrief from the event, but we want to give people the opportunity while their teams are there 
to be able to chat about what they've learned, um, kind of their takeaways, what they can apply to their work. And so these uh, team lunches on Thursday following the conference program are a really good opportunity to do that. I'm into that. I'm into how many of these are variations <laughs> on meals. Food is good. And beyond meals, um, we're excited to offer our, uh, our, our great partner, GM. Uh, we'll be bringing some brand new Chevy Bolts to test drive. Uh, all electric. Yep, all electric vehicles. Um, range of 200 miles per charge. So that's very exciting. I read about the, and these are the ones that are going to be lower price point than a Tesla, like $30,000 after the tax credit. So those are going to be interesting to see how sales of those go. Yeah, so you can take a spin. Uh, in Phoenix. Um, and then one other thing that we're really excited about uh, beyond kind of just networking, uh, we, we'll have some morning exercise programs, um, Desert Power Walk on Wednesday and yoga on Thursday morning. So you have that chance to kind of reflect on your conference experience, uh, get your blood flowing in the morning, get your brain started and worked up. Um, so we think those will be really great as well. Yeah, I didn't know there was going to be yoga. That's, that's like a good one to check <laughs> yeah. out. So what about, I'm curious, from your job as the conference director, you're talking to all these companies and NGOs and academics about um, like how to make their own operations more sustainable. But how do you make sure that you're sort of walking the walk on all of this and like minimizing the footprint of a big event? Yeah, and this is always a huge challenge for us, and uh, it really helps us sympathize with our <laughs> audience. There you go. Yeah, lots of empathy for our audience. Um, this year, uh, we've we've actually been working on working with waste management for a while now on our zero waste events, um, but we're doing more every year with those. So we're really excited to be continuing that partnership, um, and. At, at this hotel, actually, at the JW Marriott Camelback Inn, they don't typically have composting. So we specifically set up composting for this event to ensure that it is a zero-waste event. And uh, we've received great support from our, par- from our partners and sponsors on working towards this goal. Um, this is also a huge uh, area that we ask for a lot of help from attendees on just making sure things are going in the right place. And then we'll have back-of-house sorting as well. So we're really trying to do everything we can to, to make sure our waste is composted or recycled rather than sent to the landfill. Um, And we're also working with UL Environment to pursue certification as a zero waste event. Um, So that remains to be seen whether or not we will actually be certified, but we're doing everything we can um, to make that happen. Uh, Beyond just the zero waste program, we're also partnering with Natural Capital Partners to offset the emissions associated with the event. That includes attendee travel, waste, energy use, um, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that we did that for our Verge event as well. That's a really uh, great way to be able to offset our environmental impact. Um, and another thing we'll have this year is our conference app. So uh, we'll we'll have a notice going out about that in the next couple of weeks. So be sure to download that so that you're prepared for the event. Um, you can choose your sessions. You can see who else is attending. So you can check that out when it when it becomes available. Well, I was going to say, where can people get more information about all of this? Yeah, so if you visit our conference website, you can see all the information about our program, our speakers, our special programs, some of what we talked about today, um, travel information, and of course, registration. (laughs) Greenbiz.com, there's a, a handy little events tab at the top of the homepage. Um, Ellie Beekner, thank you so much. Greenbiz 16 coming up in February. Check it out. Thanks so much, Lauren. Glad to be here.
picking back up on our green design theme for today, joining me now is Molly Miller, who is an independent writer based in our hometown of Oakland. She was formerly with the Rocky Mountain Institute and Mother Earth News. Thanks for joining us, Molly. How's 2016 treating you so far? So far, so good. I I get excited for spring a little bit early, and I feel like I can already see the days getting longer. So Oh, I know. You know what I mean? Totally. I hear you on that one. That's like the best part of getting past the new year. Exactly. Yeah. So whether it is officially or unofficially, you've sort of become our beat writer for innovation in building design. And you contributed a great piece around the new year on resilience and the future of building design. So to start off, sort of what is resilience when applied to buildings and why do you want to tackle that topic now? Uh, Resilience basically means if something bad happens to your building, um, you're going to be okay. It kind of means what it what it sounds like it means intuitively. Um, so for example, if there's a power outage, if your building is is um, set up with renewables, you're going to be in better position to handle that power outage. If there's um, if you're not able to get potable water in your building anymore because it's tied to the grid or tied to power, then you'll be okay if you have maybe rainwater catchment going on in your building or recycled water going on in your building. Actually, it's something that's been around, you know, since we started doing green building and before we started calling it green building. It's, mm-hmm. it's an integrated natural part of, of designing with nature so that you're not dependent on mechanical systems and your building can just kind of go with the climate a little bit better. So it's been around forever and, and uh, it's, it's not a new concept. Mm-hmm. So what made it sort of timely to revisit now? I know there have been some sort of jarring instances where resilience comes into the conversation around a disaster like Hurricane Katrina and how you rebuild from something like that. But you also keyed into a couple of more timely developments. Like I know the folks who uh, manage lead are, are looking at some of these themes. Uh, what's sort of new in this space for you? Yeah, I think what's new is that um, resilience is becoming more part of the mainstream conversation around design. Um, You know, it's not just a bunch of green building people who are thinking about how the grid, um, being off the grid might be a good thing or um, being able to capture your own water might be a good thing. U.S. Green Building Council created three pilot credits to test out this concept of resilience. And they were written by uh, a guy named Alex Wilson and a, a big crew of people who, who care about these topics in green building. And so they're, they're just trying out um, these pilot credits in resilience. So um, it, it means that it's becoming more of a mainstream thing. I mean, those those of us who really follow the cutting edge of green building lead lead is now what we think of as mainstream. I mean, I'm sure it's really, it's really not, not every building is a lead building, but it's becoming more something that everybody can do. So if they're starting to talk about resilience, it's not on the fringe anymore. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I know we've also covered, uh, there's an architecture firm Perkins and Will. Uh, I know there are some cities that are trying to build resilience into sort of their, their zoning codes or their business and economic development plans. Um, So it it seems like sort of what's at issue now is first defining what a resilient building is, coming up with some sort of certification or checklist, and then there's obviously funding schemes because you're going to have to retrofit or build the cost into new design. Um, Where do you see sort of this whole resilient buildings push going? 
Um, I, I think that it will become something that will, people will start measuring in the building certifications more. It, it will become a mainstream part of LEED. And there's an organization called International Living Future Institute, which mm-hmm. probably a lot of your listeners and readers know about. And they, they've um, created a certification for buildings in, in the same vein as LEED, but it's much more stringent. And it, they have a thing called a living building. And those living buildings are actually very much like a resilient building. Um, they, they deal with the possibility of um, losing the power grid and you have to be um, able to generate all your own electricity and all of your own, capture all of your own water or use recycled water on site if you have a living building. And there's a couple examples of that. You know, the Brock Environmental Center is one that we brought up in the story and that's in um, uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's headquarters mm-hmm. in Virginia, and the Bullet Center is another one. Um, so these are individual efforts. I think cities will start to think about um, the the way these buildings connect to whole regions, to to districts, and things like microgrids might start to become something that regulations will take into account, and uh, I, hopefully it will become something that becomes more integrated into city planning and um, into whole regions rather than just one building at a time. And I think New York is doing a lot of great things. Um, I think San Francisco is a little bit in denial. People are still building on the shoreline, you know, ma- yeah. major well-known tech companies building right in places that are going to have flooding and storm surges. That little area called Silicon Valley. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right, right. So we're a little bit behind, but I think it's becoming something on, on everyone's radar. Mm-hmm. And you alluded that this sort of builds, the whole concept of resilience builds on top of green building themes that, that have been around for a while, like efficiency and sort of energy management, but also some of these more cutting edge things like living buildings. Just curious what you see broadly as some of the coolest either innovations or trends uh, that, that you think will shape green building moving forward. Uh, I definitely think this idea of district development is going to take off. I hope so. I mean, there's there's more and more um, cities who are doing that in San Francisco. We have the um, an eco district. They're calling it um, that. They're working on at south of south of Market mm-hmm. and one in Chinatown. And so the the Europeans and the Canadians have done district stuffed for a long time and that just means that your building can share resources if you mm. if you have solar on your building and the building next door doesn't or if you are generating heat in your building and the next door building needs it you can share um, waste heat or you can share water and things like that. So I think that's that's going to be taking off more here. And solar is, you mm-hmm. know, the big story. It's the prices have come, come down so much. And in California, it's going to be a law. It is a law that um, all of our buildings will have to be net zero energy. And so everyone is going to have to incorporate renewables. And at first, everyone thought this was going to be really difficult. But now with the trends in solar, it's not something that's going to be difficult at all for California. And and it's something that the rest of the nation is going to be able to do. So solar is just a really exciting story. 
And then, um, you know, last year around this time, I, I talked about health in buildings mm-hmm. and how that's really the new frontier. Um, and I, I think that's really connected to resilience because it's about comfort. It's it's about um, the building not not being so mechanically tied that you can't open a window and have natural ventilation. There's new studies out now that show um, a direct uh, connection between cognition and indoor air quality. And we've always kind of known this, but now these studies are really definitively showing this connection. So all these things are kind of connected to resilience, this, the surge in solar and um, the comfort and health issues in buildings. They're all going to be part of a more resilient community. So it's kind of exciting to see what will, will be happening as people adopt more and more of these in the mainstream. So with a couple of those things, you mentioned indoor air quality and sort of the energy that's being used in a building. It it comes back to measurement. And recently or of late, there's been more emphasis, it seems, put on real-time building performance as opposed to just, you know, getting your lead credits and then being done with it. You don't have to think as much about beyond your monthly bills or whatever. Um, So curious what what you make of this whole uh, big data for buildings push and, and where the technology side of measuring all this is going. Yeah, there are, that's an evolving field and I think it's going to be huge, you know, controls in buildings and um, uh, dashboards. So ways mm-hmm. of just being able to see what your building's doing and um, making all that information transparent to, to the outside world, to potential occupants of your buildings is easier now with technology because all of that information can be captured and shown in unique ways. Um, building robotics is doing really cool stuff here and lucid design and I'm sure there are many others who are um, working with the internet of things and it it really can help with this comfort issue we brought up before and the health issue because individuals can now have much more control over their area in their building when they when it's tied in with uh, controls and the internet and they're able to see what's going on in their space and able to change it individually so technology is huge but you know really when it comes to to green design and when it comes to resilience those passive design features are never going to go away. As, mm-hmm. as exciting as it is to have all this new technology and internet part of our building systems, um, if there is uh, a hurricane, you know, your power system is not going to be there for you and your controls are not going to work. So um, having the ability to have natural ventilation and open the window without um an HVAC system and all of the old classic passive design features that buildings, that green buildings um, symbolize, that's really still, that's something that we shouldn't overlook as we get excited about technology, you know. But I'm excited to see what they come up with. Yeah, yeah. Old meets new. Interesting to watch. Well, Molly Miller, thank you so much for joining us. We'll link to your latest piece in the story. Uh, You can always find that at greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks for having me. Let's shift gears now and look at the week ahead. Joining me now is Soraya Melkonian, the esteemed technical director of Green Biz 350. How's it going, Soraya? 
Good. How are you doing, Lauren? Good, good. So what's going on for next week? What are we going to read about? Getting busy now. Um, not not starting the new year off slow. Um, I'll be doing a story on what carbon markets might look like in a post-COP world. There's been a lot of abstract talk about carbon pricing as something that businesses are maybe becoming more amenable to. Uh, some governments starting to get a little more curious. But what's actually happening with all of that? I'll take a look. Uh, and then, Soraya, you've got a cool piece I'm excited to read. It's looking at 10 green crowdfunded products to keep an eye on. Uh, our senior writer, Heather Clancy, will be taking a deep dive on a serious topic, Intel's latest conflict minerals progress. Obviously, that's been a, a busy area. And then finally, our friends over at Green Sports Blog will weigh in on the sustainability of Super Bowl 50. And stay tuned because we will also have more on that on an upcoming edition of the podcast. So Ray, what do we have going in the way of events? We have one really big event. We have the Sogby webcast. This is the State of Green Business report. Um, and on February 2nd, we're going to have a premiere of this report. Um, and a corresponding webcast. And we're going to look at the 10 biggest trends for the upcoming year. So the report is produced with our partner TrueCost and Richard Mattinson um, from TrueCost will be uh, joining us for the webcast. So yeah, that's February 2nd. And you can find more information about that in the liner notes of the podcast online. That's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find the links to stories, organizations, and events we mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Soraya Melkonian. By the way, you can subscribe to Green Biz 350 through a variety of channels if you're into that sort of thing. You can go to iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud and now on Stitcher. Of course, you can find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com or through our daily email newsletter, Green Buzz. As always, send us your feedback, ideas, and comments to 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.